Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Philippians. Uh, As we turn there, it's good to remember that it was Paul who helped start this church in Philippi, uh, which you can read about in Acts 16. Uh, It was in Philippi that Lydia was converted. There, a slave girl was freed from a demon. And it was there that Paul and Silas sang in jail, ultimately leading to the conversion of the jailer. Uh, Philippi was different than many places in the Roman Empire because it was actually a Roman colony, not just a territory, but a colony. It had been reestablished by veterans of the Battle of Philippi just 20 years before Paul writes. Uh, And because of their service to the Emperor Augustus, citizens of Philippi had rights uh, that others in the ancient world did not enjoy, like certain land ownership privileges and exemption from certain taxes. If, If you lived in Philippi, you almost felt as if you lived in Rome itself. And so, when you think about Philippi, you have this place that is built on the shoulders of veterans, and you have a people who enjoy special rights that other people just don't have. And so, as you can imagine, citizens of Philippi took great pride in their home. They took great pride in their status. Loyalty ran deep in the people of Philippi. They willingly worked and spent their own wealth to enlarge and beautify their city. Does that kind of remind you of another people and another place? We can identify with the Philippians here. Though we should never glory, uh, glorify the tragedies or gloss over the evils that exist in our country's history and present, we, we can still take a certain pride in our earthly citizenship. We must name America's wrongs and say that she has not yet lived up to her ideals, but we can say that there is much good here, even as we work hard for her betterment. But it seems, as you read Philippians, it seems that Paul must have seen their civic pride when he visited Philippi, because he borrows the language of citizenship in verse 27. Look there. When he says, only let your manner of life be worthy, that's a phrase usually used in the context of citizenship. Actually, if you see the footnote there in the ESV, the Greek word here is the one that, from which our word politics comes. And it carries the idea of fulfilling your duty as a citizen. So it's as if he's saying, only behave as citizens. Except instead of behaving as citizens of Philippi, motivated by civic pride, he urges these Christians to show through their behavior the greatness of their better heavenly home. It's easy to mishear Paul when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's not saying that Christians should live in a way that shows we're worthy of the gospel. He's not telling us to prove that we are worth saving. 
He is saying something different altogether. He is saying that the important thing for us, that's why he says only, the important thing for you is to live in a way that displays the worth of the good news of Jesus. In other words, believers are supposed to live lives that show how good the good news really is. When we hear good news, we might only be thinking of the forgiveness of sins by Jesus' death on the cross. Now, to be sure, that is fantastic news. Because sin was our biggest problem. Sin kept us separated from God. Sin left us dead without hope. But the gospel of Jesus is so much bigger than the forgiveness of sins. That's only what Jesus is saving us from. And it doesn't say anything about what Jesus is saving us to. And what he's saving us to is the gospel that says God's king and God's kingdom has already come, bringing grace and mercy to sinners, recovering what was lost, restoring what was broken, establishing a new community of people who live with each other in the generous ways that God initiates and intends for us. The gospel of Christ is the announcement of peace on earth and God's goodwill toward men, bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus and assured by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, to believe that message and, and to cling to Christ by faith is to become, as Paul says in chapter 3, a citizen of heaven even while you're here on earth. It's, it is to have a better home that you've never seen before, and yet it is yours by right in Christ. And to belong to that place is to live with a new status of freed in Christ. Beloved of the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, to be redeemed by faith in Jesus is to live with all the rights and privileges that belong to the children of God. How good is that good news? If you feel and know it to be the best news, then you can totally understand why Paul is essentially saying that the important thing is to live today in light of that news. That we behave as citizens of heaven in order to show that it's better to belong to God's kingdom than to anywhere else. But now we have to ask, what does it look like to display the worth of the gospel in our lives? Well, we hear Paul describe what it looks like in verses 27 and 28. Paul's writing from prison in this point because of his preaching of the gospel, but he says whether he's able to come and see them or remains absent, he wants to hear this about them. He wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything from their opponents. Now, it, if we were to summarize what Paul is saying here, we could say that he is urging believers then and now. He is urging believers to a tenacious unity. A tenacious unity. We need to be tenacious because there will be conflict. 
as we seek to live as citizens of heaven. And we need to be united in our pursuit of life in the gospel. Let's let's think about what that means, starting with the need for believers to be united in our purpose of pursuing life in the gospel. Paul uses this language of unity when he wants to hear that they are one in spirit and one in mind, literally one in soul. One in spirit, one in soul. Now, it's likely here that Paul's basically saying the same thing twice. He's emphasizing how he wants the church to be singularly dedicated to Christ, undivided in our commitment to his kingdom. But as one writer says, if you have to make a distinction between spirit and soul here, spirit would be used of the mind with its activities of thought and reflection, whereas soul would be used of the seat of inward feelings, affections, passions, and desires. In in other words, we ought to be united in our minds and in our hearts as we pursue our new life in God's kingdom. And it is our new life in God's kingdom that we are pursuing. Paul calls us to strive for the faith of the gospel. Now that's a key phrase for us, the faith of the gospel. But it's easy to misunderstand if we make the faith equivalent to the gospel or the content of the gospel. But as one writer puts it, if we interpret the faith of the gospel in terms of faith which is appropriate to the gospel, or a faith that's based on the gospel, then Paul is really urging us to fight for the kind of trust that results from the good news. Or fight for the kind of faith which those who believe the good news have. The the kind of faith that he's talking about is the kind of faith that's not hollow or shallow, but it looks and feels like the real thing. It's heavy with grace and glory. The the kind of faith that we see whenever believers renounce old, selfish ways of living, the kind of faith that pursues obedience to Christ and imitates Him, the kind of faith that both receives Jesus as Savior and kneels to Him as King, over every facet of our lives, in in terms of what he tells us to do and what he tells us not to do as his people. That's beautiful when believers are united in their pursuit of life in the gospel. In this oneness of heart and soul, we hear echoes from the book of Acts where the Christians, the first Christians, empowered by the same spirit that is in you, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And their unanimity in their their devotion, what one writer notes, found concrete expression in the sharing of their possessions. And I see the same thing here at Trinity. Did, Did you know that the deacons over the course of 2020, spent over $20,000 in mercy. Do you know that only $3,000 of that came from the general budget? 
The rest was, uh, and the rest was made up by you, the congregation, supporting people who were in need. And did, you, did you know that the same thing happened in 2019? That, that is a picture of you, the body of Christ, being united in your pursuit of life together in the gospel, a life where needs are met with generosity and grace. That is what the kingdom of God looks like on earth. What we're really pursuing today is an entire life lived as a follower of Jesus in our parenting and in our politics, in our worship and in our work, in our growth in wisdom and generosity. In all this, we are seeking to live out our citizenship in heaven. And, and in all of this, Paul is calling us to unity because he knows it's impossible for us to do it by ourselves. He's, it's impossible for any of us to live that life on our own. Unity in our pursuit of life in the gospel is important because our life together is just that. It's together. The gospel means something for us individually, of course, but the gospel is not individualistic. It calls us into a new life of fellowship and service side by side, Paul says. Side by side. To, to say it another way, you cannot hope to make progress in the Christian life by yourself. Solo sanctification does not happen. The believer who is fighting alone to live out the faith is inevitably fighting a losing battle. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that the struggle is easy when you live in the community with fellow believers, but I am saying that struggling in the faith, struggling for the faith, can actually be productive when you're struggling side by side with other believers. When you have somebody who's outside of your own head who can challenge you when you stray and encourage you to repent and believe again in the Lord who loves us and gave himself up for us. I don't know anybody who can do that well by themselves. But I can testify from personal experience how good it is when a brother or sister does that for me. As we enter into this new year, some of you are already making conscious choices to pursue life in God's kingdom with other believers. Some of you are already choosing this path of unity. And I would, to you, I would simply say, keep going. Don't neglect those early morning breakfasts. Keep going with those Bible studies and prayer meetings. Keep having dinner together. Keep giving each other rides. Keep talking about your struggles as you go fishing together. And, and keep reminding each other of how good our God really is, of how good life in His kingdom really is. But for some of you, now is the perfect time to begin reevaluating things. If you keep doing what you've been doing, going it alone, hiding your struggles instead of sharing them, do you really expect things to be different this year? Do you expect to grow in the faith? 
The wise man said, our growth in wisdom depends on remembering and changing our foolish habits. Uh, And I would encourage you, I'd invite you to, to consider a new way for this new year. If you want your faith to be the kind of faith that flows from the good news, then invite somebody else into your struggles. Give them the chance to surprise you by telling you that they struggle too. You don't have to dive in deep right away. Just consider joining one of our small groups where over the course of a year, or maybe even two years, trust can grow and relationships can deepen. There are really good things that can only happen after you've known somebody for a year or two or three or ten. But you've got to start somewhere. And anything worth doing is worth doing really poorly at first, right? That's actually where Paul's call to tenacity comes in. Because being united in our pursuit of life together in the gospel is hard work. It is so often messy. So we need to be tenaciously graceful with each other. But Paul knows that there is real opposition to the gospel out there, too. And so his call to tenacity extends to our interactions with those who persist in rejecting Christ who are blinded to the beauty of Jesus and life in his kingdom. Now, in in the context of Philippians, we don't know exactly what was the nature of the opposition faced by believers in Philippi. Maybe it was the opposition that's typified by overt persecution. Or maybe it was a subtler opposition that makes the pursuit of life in God's kingdom sound too hard too demanding, too restrictive. It's the opposition of the world that says, you don't have to be so serious about this Christianity thing. It takes courage to maintain the faith in the face of opposition. Wherever believers seek to live as citizens of heaven, here there will be conflict because we are saying no to selfish sexuality, saying no to greed. We're saying no to the regular order of things in a fallen world because we're conscious of a better calling in Christ. Now, that is a constant challenge and rebuke to those who still live in the kingdom of the world. But Paul urges the Christians here, not to be frightened in anything by their opponents. And in this call to fearlessness, you can actually hear the echoes of Israel on the edge of the promised land under Joshua. The Lord was leading them forward into new territory, territory that they had never laid eyes on before, and terror was threatening to steal their hearts. But the Lord told Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And didn't Jesus say the same thing to us? Didn't he promise that he would never leave us or forsake us? 
Didn't he promise he'd be with us even to the end of the age? So we can live here without fear. We can face opposition unafraid because what can man do to us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Such supernatural support that fills our heart. Just simply resting on the promises of God. Such supernatural support is actually proof that God really is saving us. But it's also a proof to our opponents that they really can't win. It's a sign, Paul says, even if they don't have the eyes to see it. And so I would say to you, don't, don't give up the struggle. We need to recommit to a tenacious unity as we pursue this life together in the gospel. But I do, I do want to take just a moment and urge you to remember that the way that you struggle against opponents the way that you struggle against opponents is as important as struggling in the first place. The way that you struggle matters because when Christians encounter opposition from the world and we engage in that with the weapons of the world, using the weapons of anger and mockery and gossip and slander, then we are essentially rejecting the wisdom of God and we are embracing the wisdom of men. The wisdom of God says that we ought to love our enemies by giving them honor and respect. His wisdom says that we are to do good to those who persecute us. We are to turn the other cheek. When we are verbally blasted, we do not respond in kind. If someone demands something of you, then as long as it does not contradict God's word, then you should do it. Even going two miles when they force you to walk one, metaphorically speaking. Paul actually says something just like this in the very next chapter in Philippians 2 when he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Paul is under no illusion that the powers that were in his time were something other than crooked and twisted. That's what he says. He knows that those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus are crooked and twisted. And yet he calls believers to live among them in a way that is both fearless and innocent, bold and kind, humbly enduring what is demanded instead of responding with the kind of angry scoffing that we hear from many Christians today. When believers maintain their faith in Jesus and do so in a way that images Jesus, then we embody the truth of the gospel itself. We shine like lights in a dark world with the light of Christ shining through us. Those who persist in the face of that, persist as enemies of Christ, will see in the believers, even if they don't actually have the eyes to see it, they'll see in believers a sign pointing to the futility of fighting against God. 
But maybe, just maybe, as it's happened many, many, many times in the story of the church, the boldness of believers in the face of persecution and the love of believers for their persecutors will actually be the means by which the Spirit opens the eyes of the blind, turning unbelievers into believers in Christ. Remember that like Christ himself, a lone seed may have to fall to the ground, dead. But from that seed will spring forth abundant, fruitful life. And as it was with Christ, so it will be with the Philippian Christians. They may suffer and fall, but as they cling to Christ and to each other, as they live out their heavenly citizenship, they should expect God to bear good fruit out of their suffering. And God will bear good fruit out of their suffering and yours. That's his intention for giving it to you in the first place. Like Philip was talking about with the kids, did you notice that faith, believing in Jesus, is not the only gift that he gives to his people? Look again at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It seems a strange gift, suffering. The prospect of it alone is enough to shake us. And when it comes, we are so easily convinced that God has forgotten us or is angry with us. But nothing could be further from the truth. That wasn't the case for Jesus. And from Jesus, we can hear that Paul has learned to look at his circumstances, even the unpleasant ones, to look at his own circumstances in the light of the gospel, seeing, as he says in earlier in chapter 1, seeing that even his imprisonment is advancing the gospel. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, fearlessness is actually something that's learned, but it's learned through suffering. As we see the faithfulness, as Philip was saying, we see the faithfulness of God, that he is with us, working in us and through us. He's learned, Paul has learned a lesson that another writer urges us to learn, that God can use our afflictions to further the gospel and exalt the Lord. And that's why we should live exemplary lives in the face of our own afflictions. We ourselves, we need to learn how to think about our circumstances with this kind of gospel logic. Because anyone who seeks to live as a citizen of heaven here will suffer. Paul himself faced such opposition. I mean, that's why he's writing from prison. But Paul also understands the gospel so well that he knows there's nothing to fear because this is just how the gospel works. The path of Jesus is our path too. First comes suffering. It comes death to self and maybe even death at the hands of men. But after that, after that, 
comes resurrection. After that comes glory. And when you and I endure suffering without fear, we are bearing witness to the reality of our resurrection hope that is embodied in our risen Lord himself. So now, as back then, uh, living in a way that displays the worth of the gospel means living out a tenacious unity in the context of suffering. Our suffering might look different from Paul's or the people in the Philippian church. It'll be different than Lydia or that slave girl or the jailer, but that's only a difference in circumstance. Beneath it all, it's just the same. The call to live out our heavenly citizenship means, for now, conflict. And in these things, in these things, we learn a part of what it means to live like we said that we would when we joined Christ Church, when we resolved and promised in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that we would endeavor to live as becomes followers of Christ. And so what is it that keeps us from living that way? If we're honest, we'd have to admit that we don't really live up to this ideal. I don't. I still fall short of the glory of God, and I don't always display the beauty and the goodness of His kingdom. We, we feel torn sometimes. We love our Savior, but, but we still want to rule ourselves. Pride swells. Factions are easy. Fear is real. And it provokes us to lash out instead of love. For some of us, the, the problem stems from confusing differing ideas about how to live out our faith. We're, we're confusing that for another faith altogether. Making that mistake causes you to view and to treat a brother as an opponent. For others, it seems the problem stems from conflating this country, as good as it is. The problem stems from conflating this country with the kingdom of God, which is like confusing Babylon for the promised land. And we expect the rulers and people of Babylon to act like something other than Babylonians. It's striking to me that in all of Paul's writing, you never see him wringing his hands, worried about what the emperor is up to. On the contrary, even here in this letter, Paul is far more concerned with how two women in the church are arguing with each other. At the beginning of chapter 4, he lovingly entreats Yodia. And he entreats Sintuke to agree in the Lord. Even beyond that, he, he asks someone in the church to help these two women remember their shared life in the gospel and their past labor side by side in the gospel. Paul views it as vital that these two women in the church return to a life of tenacious unity. And he knows that they can't do it by themselves. Do you, do you see it as vital to live in tenacious unity with each other? 
Maybe like those two women, there is someone with whom you need to be reconciled. Or maybe you're recognizing that there are just some other things in your life that don't fit with your life in God's kingdom. Maybe you aren't living in that tenacious unity, but rather in anxious isolation. And maybe, maybe you're wondering if there's any room for hope. There is room for hope. And it's pictured for you right there at the table. Here at the Lord's table is the, the good news is on display for people like us who struggle and fail to show in our lives the worth of Jesus and his kingdom. It's pictured for us because here we see again how the only person who ever lived a life worthy of the kingdom of God laid down his life for you and me. By his death, he brought us out of our empires of dirt and death and into his kingdom of light and life. And in his death, we see the beauty of our king and his kingdom. His self-sacrificing love recaptures our hearts and changes our minds. And seeing him once again turns us away, frees us to turn away from our anxieties, away from our selfish concerns to live out the generous grace that he has shown to us. That's why Paul immediately follows this paragraph, this call to tenacious unity with the Christ hymn of chapter 2 that we used as our confession of faith. He knows that he is asking every single one of us to take up our cross and follow Jesus into suffering. And so, so he reminds us that the suffering of Christ was not the end of Jesus's story. Rather, it was his path toward exaltation hope and the encouragement and the comfort that is ours in Christ is what leads us back to this life that is spent striving for tenacious unity. We know that, as one writer puts it, our spiritual progress involves effort. We know, we hear Paul encourage us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but we can do so knowing that it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we can pursue this tenacious unity in the confidence that Paul mentions right at the start of his letter. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That day is not yet. Wait for it. No, not yet. But, but that day is coming. And until it does, let's remember that by His love, our names, your names, are written side by side in the Lamb's book of life. And let's begin this new year pursuing our life together in God's kingdom with tenacious unity. Let's pray. Father, this is the life that you have saved us to, this life together in your kingdom. Father, would you cause us, would you help us, 
Would you strengthen us by this meal that we're about to eat? To live lives that display the worth of your kingdom. Lives that display the beauty of your Son, our Savior Jesus. Father, cause us to be the kind of people who live this way, even in the midst of a, of a crooked and twisted generation. May we truly be lights shining in the darkness. Not so that people would praise us, but that many would see you and glorify your name. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not, for his own, not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross.